Welcome, everyone, to the Bread of Life. I'm Joel Van Hoogen. I'm the Bible teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. I'm also the executive director of the international outreach and disciple-making ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism. For the last 30 years, we've had ministry expressions in over 70 countries. You can learn more about the effective manner in which we're raising up national evangelists, disciple-makers, and church planters by going to traincpe.org or cpeonline.org. Now, let's turn and take up a consideration of the assurance that the Holy Spirit brings to the Christian in their salvation. We live in a day in which pastors have a strong sense of obligation to communicate the power of God's saving work and to measure that power by the level of assurance that the people in our churches have regarding their own salvation. We want you to know that you have eternal life, and we don't want you to doubt it. That is the goal of many. It's a worthy goal, but one that can go astray if not regulated by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. We think of 1 John chapter 5, verses 11-13. through 13. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn there. There we read, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. John goes on and says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. We note here that the purpose for which John wrote his letter, he tells us right here, is so that Christians who were shaken and questioning whether they were saved or not saved, so that their questioning could be put aside and they could be sure of their salvation. And so he writes them, in order that they could be cemented in a certain confidence or assurance of salvation. Knowing this, we state that one of the chief ends of all of our evangelistic exercises is that we would seek to grant to people a certain sure knowledge of salvation through faith in Christ's finished work. We want them to know. We want them to be certain that they've been saved. We want them to know that they've been forgiven. We want them to know that they're bound for heaven. They should know that their sins have been covered and that now they have an unending relationship with God that will last forever. Not based upon their good works. Not based upon their best efforts. Not based upon their passions. But based upon Christ's good work, Christ's complete and finished work for them on the cross. Everything that was necessary for their salvation was provided for in a lonely moment on the cross when Christ alone bore their sins, bore its punishment, took it into the grave, and rose again triumphant on their behalf. We want them to know that. We want them to believe that. We want them not to doubt, but to know that their sins have been paid for. It's all okay. That they may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's important people that know this, isn't it? Look at this book of 1 John in the Bible. And what you need to understand is that it was written to bring people to just this conclusion. 
And so armed with this conviction, the evangelical Christian over the last 50 years and beyond that has gone forth proclaiming the objective work of Christ on the cross that he has suffered there for your sins and calling people to put their faith in that work with the promise that if they would believe in his finished work, they might have the assurance of salvation, the assurance of eternal life. And we've been quite successful in that endeavor. Our churches are now full of people who may doubt all kinds of things, but they do not doubt their salvation. They may doubt that there is only one way to be saved. Maybe they might think there are other ways for salvation. They may doubt that the Bible is the sole authority for life. They may doubt that the commands of Scripture are obligatory for themselves. They may doubt that there's a hell. They may even doubt that there's a heaven. But if there's a heaven, they don't doubt that they're going there. We've been very good at giving people this assurance. But what kind of assurance is it? In fact, the only thing in some churches today that we are convinced is wrong is to not be convinced that you're saved, that you're bound for heaven. But this will be our first point this morning. Having said that, that this was John's mission, that people might know that they have eternal life, John himself, and we'll see this throughout the New Testament, many times in the New Testament, we are reminded of the danger of a false assurance of salvation. The reason our mission is to assure people or help people find the true assurance of salvation is because this world is full of individuals who live with a false assurance or a false hope of salvation. We are to tear that hope down in order to present to them the true hope that comes through Christ alone. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, the Lord Jesus warned against this false assurance. He doesn't just do this once. He does it multiple times throughout the gospel accounts. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And here is the danger of a false assurance. You have this book that is about the assurance of salvation, 1 John, but if you look at it carefully, you'll see within it that there are multiple warnings for those who think that they're saved and are not. You can go back to 1 John there for a moment, take your Bibles there, and I'll let you keep flipping back and forth. But let's just look at a few of them. But then later on today, just tread your way through it. Find all of the points at which John builds up his argument for our assurance, but at the same time, find all the points at which he questions the assumption or the false assurance that men might harbor to their hearts and their minds. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. Hugh says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. 1 John 2, 9. Hugh says He is in the light and hates His brother is in darkness until now. 1 John 3.15 Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And if you go on through 1 John, you'll see many other verses like these. The Apostle John, writing in his letter, is concerned that people might have assurance of salvation but he is just as concerned that people who hold a false assurance of salvation 
might be brought to understand the reality of this tenuous hold they have in their confidence in order that they might come in a right and true assurance of their salvation. In fact, let me just say that it is God's intent that we should know that we're saved. And it is possible, by the way, to be saved and not have a full assurance of your salvation. That's why the epistle of John was written. It was written to Christians who were questioning whether they were saved or not. It's possible to be saved and not always to feel and have an assurance of your salvation. But let me say, living without a full assurance of salvation, even though you're truly saved, is not as serious a condition as living with an assurance of salvation when you're still truly lost in your sins. That's more serious. The one is important. The one will bring you great peace and triumph and victory, and God wants it for you, dear child of God. It's important to change the very nature of your existence here on earth and to fill you with a sense of His joy and His peace and His love and His hope. But the other one is absolutely essential for your eternity and the end of your eternity. So here's the next thing that we might want to point out here. Where do we go to find our insurance of salvation? Where do we go to find our assurance of salvation? This is really what we've been talking about over the last 10 messages. We've been talking about the experiences that are ours in salvation. Let me give you the answer first by just saying we find the assurance of our salvation in the objective and subjective realities of salvation provided for us through Jesus Christ. We find our assurance of salvation in the objective and subjective realities that are provided for us in the salvation that Jesus Christ offers us. First, we rest in the objective work of Christ. We find our assurance in the objective work of Him dying for our sins and bearing our punishment in our place and rising again from the dead to grant us and cover us with all of His righteousness. His work alone on our behalf accomplished for us, not from any working on our part. We passively are here. He pours out upon us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is the objective work of Christ on our behalf and believing it and knowing how wonderfully and completely He has accomplished this for us. Dying and rising from the dead. Fulfilling everything that was anticipated in the sacrifices that were made in the temple for long year after year after year. Being that final sacrifice that final Passover lamb who bore the sin of the world, rising from the dead to be our great high priest and to represent that sacrifice for us before a holy God, seating us in Him in heavenly places who have trusted and believed in Him. These are objective truths that we rest in. That if I confess my sin and I believe in Him, I'll be saved. I rest in those things. My assurance is in these things. The question is, is that enough? Is that enough to provide me with all the assurance that I need? Is it enough that I simply agree with this doctrine, these objective truths, this doctrine of Christ's vicarious suffering or substitutionary suffering for my sin and rising again from the dead in order to provide me His righteousness or to provide righteousness? Is that enough to give me the assurance of salvation? To be doctrinally correct and believe that these things are true and that He's done these things? Well, the fact is that the devil himself knows that this doctrine is true, and yet he's not saved by such a knowledge, is he? The fact is that it may be true, but it may not be true for you. It may not be true in you. 
It may not be true of you. How do I know that this objective work of Christ on the cross has been applied to my life in everlasting salvation? How do I get the assurance that what he's accomplished there has been accomplished in me by faith? Well, that brings us to the second element. We rest not only in the objective work of Jesus Christ, but we also rest in the subjective application of that work to our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been talking about. There are objective truths in our salvation, but there is at salvation also an experience that finds its way into our lives. It's subjective. I encounter it. I experience it. The Bible offers this to me. God gives it to me as a part of my assurance. I am awakened. We talked about that. And in the awakening that God gives me, I seek to find an answer for my sins. And how does a person who is spiritually blind and spiritually dead and actually spiritually repressing the truth of God so that he doesn't know God and he doesn't understand God and he doesn't seek to remedy his situation? How does this person ever awaken if God doesn't awaken him? But if you've come to Jesus Christ and received him as your Savior, you have in your testimony a story of a moment when in a flash or over a period of time, God began to awaken you so that you sought a remedy for your sin. And that's the work of God in your life. It's a subjective experience. God also calls you to repentance and God gives you the gift of repentance. And so there comes a time in this moment in which we come to salvation, in which we take up, what we said is that we take up God's argument against ourselves and it becomes our own argument. And so we turn... Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Bread of Life ministry, go to breadoflifeboise.org. There you can also contact us with requests for this or other messages. Please join us in our next broadcast. Until then, may God bless you.